0: good morning. I am so glad to see you. I get the bonus this month. I got to be here back to back. Um, and I to, to get this important information directly to you very quickly, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. It's a great day. I've got a picture on the screen um, that's going to be there. This is my mom and dad. Um, uh, if this could be a headline for their relationship, it would say, college boy marries the farmer's daughter. And that's because my dad was uh, to help pay for school in college. He went to OSU. He worked in the dairy uh, at the college, and my mom's dad, my grandpa, was the head herdsman, which means he was my dad's boss. And so this romance eventually led to him literally marrying the farmer's daughter. Um, so here in-laws. We got another picture here. Um, This is Mr. Jesse and Miss Pam. And um, uh, I can't remember, are y'all married here? Right right. Right before they got married. So um, uh, if they could have a headline for their romance, it might be this, love at first skate. And so uh, Miss Pam, as a young teenager, was in the skating rink, and Mr. Jesse, he was he was doing laps, he was skating, as only Mr. Jesse could do, he was showing out. Miss Pam leans over to somebody, I'm not sure who, and she says, I'm gonna marry that boy. <laughs> and a few years later, they did. And from that romance, Miss Pam uh became a mother. And so I love, I love a good romantic comedy. I love a good romantic comedy. And I, I because I love it when the good guys win, and I love it when the long shot relationships work out. I just, I love that. Uh and I think maybe it's because partially for me. Uh, because life seems so much more difficult than that. It seems so much harder. It doesn't get wrapped up in two hours. I mean, life seems so much harder. I. It seems so much more difficult to get the happily ever after endings that we want. Um, it, it just seems tough. And And now we've talked about from the beginning of the year, We are on a journey this year to get to know the real Jesus. And as part of that, then we have said, okay, let's look and see what God says about himself, what Jesus says about himself, the way he's described, the metaphors that are used. And here's something really interesting. I think those metaphors are on purpose. They're not by accident. They're not coincidental that God had some very specific intentions for those metaphors. And so God came up with a way to help us understand some things that would be difficult for our human, especially mine, our human minds to understand one of the most powerful metaphors that God uses to describe himself in the person of Jesus is Jesus as the bridegroom. Yep, you heard me right. God stars in his very own rom-com. He has put it together and I want you to listen to the way that John the baptizer describes Jesus in these terms. Here's what he had to say. John the baptizer said, I'm not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend, and John speaking of himself, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. Now, listen to me. If that doesn't make a lot of sense, don't worry. Because we coming back to that, and it's going to make some sense. I love that passage. But how intriguing is it that we have John here describing Jesus as the hero groom in God's very own love story. I absolutely love that. Now we know it takes two to tango we got to have some more involved here if there's going to be a love story, a a romance. So it's not complete without that second person. So if Jesus is presented in this metaphor as the groom, then who's the bride? Well, Paul helps us answer that. So I'm going to read that to you. It says this, Paul says, for husbands, uh, this means, so we're kind of jumping into the middle of a, a very... Uh, exquisite diatribe here. But listen, for husbands, this means love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. And he did this to present her, who the church, to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, without any other blemish. Instead, she would be holy and without fault. Okay. So we have a brand new metaphor that we're going to be using for this series. Jesus is the groom and the church is his bride. Now we have a problem though. Uh, there is a generation gap. Um, this generation gap is significant Because we're talking about not just a generation gap, it is a complete information gap, and it spans over 2,000 years, and here's the problem. See, a great romance in the year 0033 is very different from a great romance of 2023 they're very, very different. So with that in mind, we're going to understand this metaphor that God gives us of Jesus as the groom. We're going to understand in order for us to better know what that means, we have to understand what a romance looked like in the first century. And we need to understand more than what it looked like in 0033. We need to understand what a Jewish romance look like in the year 0033? Because after all, Jesus lived in a Jewish culture. Jesus himself was a Jew, and all the relationships around Jesus, those were Jewish relationships. So with that as our backdrop, um, we are going to look and see what does a Jewish romance look like, and I know, guys, you're going to be very interested in this, a Jewish romance in the year 0033. And so in an attempt to make this more understandable for us, so guys, really, you might want to take notes on this, here's what we're going to do. We are going to break down in a very unromantic way, we're going to break down and itemize for you a Jewish romantic relationship from 2,000 years ago, and we've boiled it down to 11 steps. So, you've got that right. Here we go. This is, in fact, the 11 easy step guide to a first century romance. That's what we're doing to do this morning. Are you ready? <sighs> Here we go. A romance in the first century began with a very precise legal agreement. It was an arrangement right off the top. It actually began with a precise legal arrangement. And in the first century, it would be this, it would be a contract. So your father would come to you if you were a young man and he would say, son, here's the girl you want to marry. And if you lucky your father would actually pick a girl you do want to marry and and regardless of who it was the father and the son go to the father and the daughter and they would present them with a contract for marriage romantic right I know and this contract listed all the details we're not going to go into all the details um, uh, but I have a picture of a contract here hit that next slide this is an actual uh, first century marriage contract. In that contract was listed all the details. It, it would, and actually, it was great protection for the woman because it also listed what would happen if that marriage ended. And it really gave her her only protection in that. I'm going further into this than I intended to, but it was a detailed contract of who would do what, who would pay what, uh, and how much would be paid. Included in that contract, which by the way was legally binding, included in that contract was also something called the bride price, the bride price. This was a tangible sacrifice of hard cash or property. And it was uh, so important because um, this was uh, 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 a way for the young man to honor the bride and the family um, for his privilege of getting to attach his life to hers for the rest of his life. It was very important. If he was going to marry the bride of his choice or of his father's choice, he was going to pay dearly in order to do that. And guess what? The more valued she was in the community, the, the higher the price was, this was a very important thing. So uh, we're not making this up. This is really what a romantic relationship looked like in the first century. Um, and now there's a reason why none of what I'm telling you is really listed in the background material of scripture. And that's because those first readers of the new covenant, um, they were all first century mostly Jewish people. And they all understood how a Jewish romance worked. They didn't need that placed in scripture. But for us, there's an information gap. And so that's why we're filling in this information gap. Um, So here we have uh, this bride price. Um, The bridegroom, he would have to work much of his life up to that point in order to save enough and accumulate enough for him to marry the bride of his choice and if the bride agreed to the contract they would make it official with a toast so there was Another cup involved. We've talked about a cup recently this spring. There was another cup involved. And in fact, this was the cup of wine that they would both drink from to seal this contract. It was as if they were signing this contract with this toast. And this toast signified the young man's willingness to make the sacrifice bride price, and it was the young woman's willingness to enter into this relationship. This was really a celebration. And before the groom left the bride, before he went home to get ready for the wedding, and uh, then the bride price would actually be paid. It wasn't something that was coming in the future. He would pay it that day before he left. And the groom paid dearly. He paid dearly to marry this woman of his choice, and at this point in the process, we would say that they were engaged. That's kind of our terminology for that, and that's kind of really the state that they were in, but it's not the same as our engagements today. In fact, this engagement was legally binding. It was as if they were already married, because the only way now to get out of this engagement was to have a divorce. That was the only way. Which, by the way, if you look back to the Christmas story between Mary and Joseph, this part of that. You should go back and read that. Very interesting, If you with the, these facts. All right, so now we have them engaged, legally binding with the contract. um, And now once the price has been paid and they've sealed the contract with a cup of wine, now it's time for the groom to depart. He actually leaves. He leaves the bride, and he heads home because he's got a lot of work to do. He's got to get ready for their life together. Because the groom's responsibility now is to go home and build a bridal chamber, a place for the honeymoon, and a place for them to live. And the the groom, though, before he left, he would reassure his bride, and he would tell her something like, Listen, you are very dear to me. Do not worry. Yes, I'm headed home. I'm going to go back with my dad. I'm headed home. And and I'm going to get busy. And I'm going to prepare a place for you, a very special place for you. Do not worry because I will be back, I promise. And I'm going to sweep you off your feet. And I'm going to carry you with me to our wedding and our new life together. So don't worry. And he did leave. Four a time. Now this bridal chamber that he was going home to prepare and to work on it was either a room that he added to his father's house or sometimes it was a separate on the property um, because this would be a bridal chamber it would ultimately be a place where they would live and the the groom would spend the better part of a year getting this place uh, built and getting it furnished, getting it prepared, and sadly, getting it decorated. I'm not sure how good he did with that. But um, he would stock it with provisions for seven days, because once they went in to the bridal chamber, they would not come out for seven days. Now, this part of the first century romance, um, I I love this. Um, I find this kind of funny, because the groom did not get to say, okay, dad, I've done it. The, the, the house is built. The room's ready. So I'm going to go pick up my bride, all right? I'm going to go. No, that's not the way it worked because the father was pretty smart. He was wise. The father understood if it was up to the groom to decide when he was going to go pick up his bride, he'd probably just run to the backyard, throw up a teepee, light a campfire, say, yeehaw, and let's go get my bride. Dad knew that. And so, dad was the only one. The father was the only one who could say, okay, you're done. You can go get your bride. Only the father got to decide when the son was done, when the groom was finished. It wasn't the, the, the bride didn't get to decide. Um, the bride's father didn't get to decide. The groom didn't get to decide. Only the father himself got to decide. And people would often walk by while the son was out there building this home. And they would walk by and they'd say, man, it's looking good. Gosh, it's looking good. When are you going to go? When's the big day? When are you going to go get the bride? And as any good young Jewish man would say, he would reply, I don't know. Only my dad knows. Only the father knows. I don't know. But then one day... When everything was just right and everything was prepared, it was just at the right time, the father would walk up to the groom and he would look at the groom and he would say, son, son, you're finished. It's done. It's time for you to go get your bride. (laughs) Only the father got to decide that. What might have been about a year-long process, suddenly it was over and it ended But what about the bride? What's the bride doing all of this time while the groom is preparing for the wedding? Well, the bride was waiting. (laughs) She was waiting for her groom. She was waiting because she knew that she was spoken for. She knew that she now, her heart belonged to another And so she was busy protecting her heart. She was busy keeping her heart safely away from all the other bachelors in the village or other villages. She stayed faithful to her groom. She didn't have to worry or wonder, is he going to show back up? Because she trusted him. He said he was going to show back up, so she knew he would. In fact, she even wore a veil over her face, kind of hiding herself from all the other people, keeping her separate from all the other guys, as if to say, listen, fellas, I'm taken, back off, I'm taken. Because she knew that he would come back. Do you know one way that she knew? She was absolutely certain that he would come back because he had already paid his life savings. He had paid already so much for the honor of marrying the bride of his choice. So there's no question he would come back. He would return. But she had no idea when he would return. So she had to wait. She had to expect him any evening at any time it could be. She just had to expect. In the first century context, she had all of her belongings together. They were all ready to go at a moment's notice and she would be able to travel she would have her lamp and it would be filled with oil and she would be ready and waiting on the chance that the groom might come back with his man on that night. He would come back to sweep her away and take her off to the wedding until finally, finally that day would come when the father would look at his son and he would say, son, you're done, you're finished. He would say the time is right you can go get your bride and so now it was time for the groom to return time for the groom to return and he would gather up his groomsmen and he would sneak off in the middle of the night now funny thing happens because as the year would progress she would gather up all of her bridesmaids and they would all be at her house and they would all be waiting together just thinking maybe it's tonight maybe it's tonight, maybe it's tonight and finally That night would come and he would sneak off with his groomsmen in the middle of the night and they would go and they would surprise her. And she would have such anticipation because she didn't know what night it was. She just knew it was going to be coming. She may have her lamps ready and she may have her bridesmaids all there with her and they were ready and and she may already even be dressed in her wedding clothes every night She may have been ready, but she didn't know when. So she was definitely surprised. Now this is important. To surprise your bride in the middle of the night, in the first century Jewish tradition, there were some rules. (laughs) You had to follow some rules. I mean, let's be honest. She needed a little bit of time to get some things together and to get fixed up. She didn't want to show up with bedhead, right? She needed some more. There had to be some some kindness in this. So this is how it worked. We're honestly not making this stuff up. This is how it worked in the first century. 2,000 years ago, she needs some kind of warning. Couldn't get a text message. (laughs) Didn't have a carrier pigeon. She needed a warning. So here's how it worked. The groomsmen would arrive from a distance and they would arrive in the distance with great volume they were very loud on their way to go get her and she would be awakened by a shout in fact there would be many shouts that she would be hearing it was a loud thing those shouts would give her and her bridal party all notice they needed to get up and get their things together and to get their lamps and to leave with the groom and the groomsmen for the celebration And once they all got back to the father's house, the honeymoon suite, the bridal chamber, the celebration was in full swing. And as part of the celebration, the bride and the groom would enter into the honeymoon suite. It was called the bridal chamber. And the door was shut for seven days. Self-explanatory. If this were a movie, we would fade to black. At this time though, the father of the groom would gather up all the family and all the guests of both families and they would all be waiting for the marriage to be consummated because only then could the party outside really begin. So this is what happened. The best man, wait, I'm not making this up. The best man of the groomsmen would be outside of the door of the bridal chamber and he would be listening for the groom's voice because at some point the groom would walk up to the door and he would say something to the groomsman to let the, the best man know that the marriage had been consummated. The best man would then tell the, the, all the wedding guests and the party would then begin. I promise you that's how it worked. And you thought you had pressure at your wedding. Just imagine yourself, if you were a groom or you were a bride and you're, you're behind and, and just know that the best man has his ear to the door and waiting on you. Everybody, all 500, and behind the best man are 500 people all waiting on you to say that the party can start. Pressure. We're in the bridal chamber for seven days, for one week. But it wasn't over. At the end of that week, the, 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 the groom and the bride they would emerge from the bridal chamber because it was time for the marriage supper it was time for the marriage supper this was a big celebration they would emerge from the bridal chamber slowly to the cheers of the crowd and the bride now no longer had a veil on her face and the marriage supper would begin and after the marriage supper they would then start their lives together The life that the groom had prepared in the place that he had prepared. And they lived happily ever after. That is a great story, isn't it? I mean, that is worthy of a big Hollywood, big budget movie. But let's now go back to the point of today. Because that's all the background information gap that we didn't have because we did not live in the first century and we were not Jews in Jewish romantic relationships. So, if God used that metaphor of a Jewish groom to describe himself as Jesus, so we have Jesus who is Jewish and God makes him a Jewish groom. Now let's see what our groom has been up to. And let's take a look at this metaphor. By the way, we already know who the bride is. You are part of the bride of Christ if you have submitted your life to Jesus because that makes you part of his church, which is the bride of Christ. And because you are part of his church, which is the bride of Christ. This has a lot to do with you, with Jesus as the groom. So Jesus is Jewish, and he kept the Jewish customs, which we're going to find out, in choosing his bride. Now this picture we're about to show you is not just history. This is God's great romance. You see... Jesus, as a good young Jewish man, as a groom, Jesus had to have a marriage contract. That was the custom. And we find this contract in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says this. It says, the day is coming. In fact, I want to I read this to you. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, he says this. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This uh, covenant, aka contract. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. No, 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 no. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned my back on them, says the Lord. So, in other words, this old covenant was basically the Ten Commandments, okay, and the other commandments that God gave Moses. So, we see that as the Ten Commandments that were written on stone, okay? But this new covenant, God is saying is going to be written, this new contract, not written on stone, it's going to be written on their hearts. He goes on, but this new covenant, this new contract that I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. This as it should say inside that contract now we have the terms of the contract here are the terms he says and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins the terms of the contract say this God is going to forgive them of everything and it's not like he gets amnesia and suddenly, oh, I can't remember they sin. No, no, no. He says, I'm not going to remember them against them. I'm not going to hold those sins against them any longer. Now, get this. this. This is unbelievable. So according to this contract, not the old contract that they broke, this new contract seems to be unbreakable. because even bride while he's building the chamber while he's at his father's house while he's working even while he's away should the bride cheat on him it's gonna hurt yeah it's gonna hurt it's gonna crush him yeah it's gonna crush him but according to this contract he's gonna look past it because he will pay for it can you imagine this is a covenant that not even the bride can break? How, how can God make such a contract? How can He do that? Well, the price, the price was very high. That price that Jesus paid, that was the bride price written into the contract, the bride price. And what was that that Jesus paid? What was the bride price? Well, the bride price was that Jesus left the perfection of heaven and he came to this earth. The bride price was that Jesus shed the glory of his existence, whatever that was, and he put on the lowly flesh and blood of his own creation and he came here left the glories of heaven and he came here and he walked among us that was the bride price. You know what else was the bride price? The bride price was his very life. The bride price was his death. And again, his bride is every single believer who has made up his church throughout the world. And that bride price As any good young Jewish groom would do, he sealed it with the cup. Now this is something we talked about recently. That cup, it's the same cup. Jesus sealed the contract with a cup. And here's where we have that recorded. It's in Matthew chapter 26. It says, and he took a cup of wine and he gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it. For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant, confirms the contract between God and his people. And it is poured out. So here's the bride price. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And now we drink from that cup, accepting bride price that he paid. In fact, Jesus was going to pay that bride price in just hours after he sealed that contract with the cup. He's going to pay that bride price. It's as if Jesus is saying to us, listen, I'm going to cover the bride price. That's what I'm going to do. But for you, what I want you to do, what I'm you to do is to wait on me, to be faithful to me. I'm going to pay the bride price, but I want you to run from temptation. And then I love this next picture that we have of Jesus. So the contract for the groom has been accepted. it, It has been offered. It's been accepted. And then we find now the bride price is getting ready to be paid. And here we find Jesus in the garden. Listen to this. He walked away about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. God, Father, it's as if he's saying this, will you remove the burden Will you cancel this contract? Will you allow me to walk away? Can we end this now? I, I I don't know if I can pay the bride price. I don't know if I can go on and 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 enter into this relationship. I don't know if I can do it. Can you just imagine? Uh, in some scenario in the first century, a young Jewish man who had saved his entire life, put together everything that he had, and he was getting ready to offer it all for the bride price. Can you imagine him having a conversation with his father and saying, dad, I, I, I don't know. I, I I know we, we, I, I know we're, this is what, I, I know this, I, the plan, I, Dad, I I don't know if I can pay it. I don't know if I can sacrifice, make the sacrifice. I don't know if I can do it. Pleading with his father, Father, can you get me out of this? I'm not sure this is what I want to do. I, I don't know if I can do it. And then Jesus says, Father, yet I want your will to be done. Father, your will, dad, not mine. And then something amazing happened. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. As if his father is saying, I understand, son. I I understand, but no, no. We can't take it back. No. You can do it. And son, it'll be worth it. What was that bride price? Jesus, the glory of heaven for pain on this earth physical pain, torture, and death. Does understanding the bride price that Jesus paid for his bride, does understanding that price paid make you on any level want to meet expectations of the groom? The sacrifice that he made, does it make you want? to stay faithful you see when the bride in the first century was tempted all she had to do was look at that contract and be reminded of the price that was paid be reminded of how he paid so dearly and I imagine she was encouraged And my friends, for us, the price has been paid. And once Jesus paid that price, once he paid the price, it was time for him to depart. Like every good young Jewish groom in the first century, it was time for the departure. As soon as the bride price was paid, it was time for the departure. And and so he is going away, but he says, hey, I'm going to come back. Here's how he words it. As any good Jewish groom would, here's what he says. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. In other words, don't worry. Don't worry. Trust in God? Yeah. Yeah. Also trust in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? In other words, I'm going to build the bridal chain. Would would I have promised you that? Would I have paid the price if none of that was true? He said, I'm going to pay the price, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, but don't worry. Then he says, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And my friends there, that is where we are today. In this story, that is where we are. That is where we find ourselves right now in this great, big love story of God. You are right here. 2,000 years after Jesus offered the contract, after Jesus... Paid the bride price. After Jesus, the groom, departed. This is where we are right now. We are waiting. But he's coming back. I mean, he paid an incredibly high price. He'll be back. But why so long? Why so long? Why is it taking so long for him to come back? I mean, even folks in the early days, before he had even left, were already asking, when are you coming back? I mean, they couldn't wait. When are you coming back? And like every good Jewish groom in the first century, Jesus responded. He says, however, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the son himself. That makes no sense outside of any other picture than Jesus as our groom. He says, no one knows. The angels don't know. I'm the son, the groom. I don't even know. It's not my job. I don't know. Only, he says, only the father knows. Then he adds, and since you don't know when that time will come, Be on guard. Stay alert. And that's where we are. So we wait for him. We're waiting for the groom and his return to the bride. Now this is really, really a big deal. I don't want you to miss where we're going with this. The question now we have to ask is how have you been waiting his return he has asked us to protect our hearts from the distractions of this life because he has paid a high price for us we have to be in a place in our life where we say okay i'm going to honor that sacrifice how have we been honoring that sacrifice How have we been honoring the bride price that was paid for his bride? And as part of the first century tradition, the bride would wear a veil. A veil. And that veil would signify, I'm waiting on my groom to return. I'm waiting I I am no longer my own. I was bought with a price. The veil would signify I'm no longer my own because my heart belongs to another. And he proved where his heart belonged with the sacrifice that he made. Even Paul himself said, we are not our own. Paul says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. And listen, he promised, though. He promised he would be back. So there's going to be a return. He is coming back. And again, we ask the question, but why so long? Why so long? But if we look into the Psalms, we find out that for God, on God's calendar, on God's timeline, a thousand years is like what? One day. A thousand years to us, oh, it's just like a day for God. So what does that mean? On God's time frame, Jesus has been building that honeymoon suite, that bridal chamber for what? Two days now? But not to us. See, here in America, We're getting tired of waiting. We grow weary. I mean, we think that if Jesus didn't come back last year and he didn't come back last week, then he's certainly probably not coming back tonight. So we get tired of waiting. We get distracted. I mean, listen, there are so many other things that we can focus on, and we can have those distractions right now with no waiting But that's not how the kingdom of heaven, how the kingdom of God works. In fact, we're almost done, but listen to this. This is Jesus, the groom, explaining in terms of a marriage, a wedding, how the kingdom of heaven works. What does our groom say? Let's listen to this. Jesus speaking. The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So in other words, all the bridesmaids get together at the house of the bride. He goes on, five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed... What's happening now in our life, the bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and they fell asleep. Well, it's natural. They are going to eventually sleep. It gets late at night. They're just waiting. They're waiting though. They're waiting. Verse 6. At midnight, in other words, they're surprised. Middle of the night, they were aroused by the shout Okay, we're right in here with the story. This is how it worked in the first century. And Jesus is using this metaphor, a shout. Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. So the groomsmen are shouting, we're here, we're here. And come out and meet him. Verse 7, all the bridesmaids got up and they prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, hey, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to the shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy the oil, the, groom, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us but he called back. This is Jesus, the groom, speaking. He called back. Believe me. I, I don't know you. I hear you, but I don't know you. And then Jesus finishes with this sobering statement. So you too must keep Watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. That's our groom. Those are his words. And so I simply end with this question How have you been waiting? Are you prepared for the return of the groom? See, while we wait for Jesus now, he has asked us two things primarily. He said, I want you to love me with everything about yourself everything about your mind and your soul and your body, everything. Love me with your all. And here's the second thing he asked. And I want you to love those people around you. Love me with everything. And I want you to love these other people around you. That's what he's asked. And so here's my question. What has your focus? What has your attention? What distractions? are floating around your life keeping you from looking forward to the return of the bridegroom and whatever those distractions are here's what we're asking you to do this week as a next step we're asking you will you will you seriously write those down sometime this week will you write down everything that might possibly Possibly be distracting you that might possibly be capturing your attention might be grabbing on to your heart and leaving you open to anything besides Jesus and with those things written down will you then have a conversation with God about those things spend time Talking to the Father as we wait for the Son. Because you know, He is coming back. I mean, He's the groom, as any good young Jewish groom would do. He is coming back. In fact, He's coming back with a shout, just like He would as a groom. And one day he's going to come back, the Bible says, with a commanding shout. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, just like the groom would do with a commanding shout, with a voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on this earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet our Lord in the air. And then we will be with the Lord forever. And you know what happens next? If we understand this right, what happens next is the marriage celebration. And John the baptizer, here we go back to John. I told you we were going to make that make sense. John the baptizer, he said, hey, hey, guys, listen. In this God's rom-com, this story that God is creating, this romance, this love story, he said, I'm the best man. I'm the best man in this story. I'm going to be the one at the bridal chamber one day in heaven listening for the voice of the groom so that the celebration can begin. And here, once again, is what John said. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who attends the bridegroom, John's saying, hey, that's me, that's me. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits. He's at the door. He listens for him. And it is full of joy. He says, I'm going to be full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And John says, that joy to say, let the celebration begin. Let the party get started. He said, that joy will be mine. Do you know what happens next? If we understand this right, the marriage supper, who's going to be there? Who's going to be at the marriage supper? The marriage supper of Jesus, the lamb, the groom. Who's going to be there? Well, it's going to be all the friends of God from the old covenant. I mean, there's going to be Abraham there, and there's going to be Isaac there, and there's going to be Jacob and all the prophets. You're going to find Daniel there. You're going to see Jeremiah there. And just a word of information here, you might want to go read some of their books before you sit down at the marriage supper with them so you have something to talk about. You might want to know what they wrote. Wow. They'll all be there. And listen to this described by John the disciple. And it was given to him by God himself. But he paints this picture. Listen. And he's saying, here's what's coming. It's going to happen in the future. It's coming. Listen to the description of what we just talked about. It says, let us be glad and rejoice. And let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the lamb. And his bride has prepared herself and she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. My friends, those good deeds will never get you to that marriage supper. We are only there because Jesus paid the bride price himself. He offered you the contract. He paid the bride price. And all of those who will submit their lives to the groom. And then he departs. But he says, I'm coming back. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And I'll be back so that I can sweep you off your feet and you can be with me where I am at my Father's house with me forever. So, the question is, for some of you this morning, Jesus has presented you that contract. And have you symbolically sealed that with Jesus? In your heart, have you accepted that contract with Jesus? And for some of you, it's the next question. Because we know the bride price has been paid. What is your response now? If you have submitted your life to Jesus, if you have submitted your life to him... You said, I've been following my way, but no longer I'm going to follow your God. Your way, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to turn from my way and turn to you. It's called repentance. I'm going to leave that behind, and I'm now going to pursue you. I'm going to walk away from what I was walking toward, and I am now going to chase after you. And so the question is this. How have you been waiting? How have you been chasing? What has your response been? Because I promise, if you've submitted your life to him, he will be back for you, his church, just as he promised. So our final question of today, I'm going to repeat it. Jesus is coming back for you. How have you been waiting? Let's pray. Father, I am so very grateful that you offered me a contract. You offered me a contract that God, if I will submit my life to you, if I will give you myself that God, you have said, I can't break that contract. I cannot break that relationship because you've already paid for every sorry thing I will ever do in my life. You've paid for it. And God, I pray I pray if we have one friend here today who has not yet submitted their life to you, that if you are calling on them right now, that they will say yes to you, yes to you, yes to you. And God, for anyone who has already said yes to you, I pray in the name of Jesus that if we have tried to be unfaithful to you, if we have been distracted, if we have been called by somebody else and they got our attention and we turned our hearts and our life away from you, I pray that this morning our hearts will be pulled back to you and you alone, and that our lives can be characterized by chasing after you, our bridegroom who paid the dear price for his bride. Make it so, Jesus. Make it so. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen.